Amen. Let's pray. Father, may, may that be our life song. I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ. May we live unashamed for You. May we live our lives in the light of what we believe. Help us to stand, Father. Help us to stand for You even when those around us fall. Even when those around us criticize and condemn. Let us stand for You and stand up for Your principles. We pray now that You will visit with us, Lord. Inspire us, challenge us today as we study Your Word. In the precious name of Your Son, we pray. Amen. Well, it's been said that all that's needed for evil to succeed is for good people to stay quiet. And the converse is also true. When good people speak up, evil can be defeated. And this was graphically illustrated inside Bulgaria during the dark days of World War II. Alex and I were talking about this last week. Bulgaria was allied to Germany with a formal agreement made in 1941. And the agreement allowed for German military bases inside Bulgaria while handing back to Bulgaria lands that had been in dispute for years between the two countries. Members of the Bulgarian government who wished to implement Hitler's final solution against the Jews planned to begin the first phase by sending all the Jews from the returned lands to Germany's concentration camps. When a member of parliament, Peshev, heard the plan, he gathered other representatives and, and he marched into the office of the Minister for the Interior demanding an explanation. Peshev and the others pressured him to rescind the order, which he did. However, not all the regions received the telegram in time. In Plovdiv, Bulgaria's second largest city, Jewish people were rounded up early in the morning, with most of them held in the local school hall, awaiting deportation by train to Germany. And here, Metropolitan Cairo, the head of the local church, acted immediately. He sent a telegram of protest to the king, threatening to lie across the tracks in front of the first train to leave with Jews. He then went to the school where he was barred entry by the police, announcing that he no longer felt himself bound by the laws of the government and would act according to his conscience as a minister of Christ. Cairo climbed the fence, promising the Jews gathered there, wherever you go, I'll go. Sometime after that, the order not to deport the Jews arrived at Plovdiv, and they got to return to their homes. Meanwhile, Peshev was expelled from the vice presidency of the parliament and censured. So foiled at their first attempt, the Gestapo pressured the king into an order that Jews be expelled from cities into the Bulgarian countryside. They hoped this would stir up anti-Semitism in the country and allow the deportations to eventually go ahead. And it was at this point that Metropolitan Stefan, head of the Bulgarian Orthodox Church, came into his own. He convened a meeting of his church's leadership, which unanimously condemned the order to move Jews to the countryside. He knew what would happen. The government made plans to go ahead with the deportation anyway, scheduling it for a day of national celebration in the hope that all the deportations would go unnoticed among all the day's festivities. Stefan would have none of this. 
standing on the steps of the cathedral, a large crowd lay before him and and members of the government, including the prime minister, sat behind him. He was to give a speech on the day of festivity, on the celebration. He had a prepared speech, but he threw it away. And he strongly condemned the persecution of the Jews and called on the government to resist the influence of the Nazis. The prime minister stood up and he denounced Stefan and called on him to stop interfering in political matters. The deportation to country areas proceeded, but Stefan was undeterred. In the face of threats to arrest him, he offered to christen all Jews who wished to, a measure that would mean they couldn't be deported to Germany. The minister for the interior then responded by refusing to recognize any christenings. And he ordered the closure of all churches in Sofia. Stefan informed the government that his churches would ignore the order. And he sent a circular to all his parish priests explaining the fate that awaited the Jews in Germany. Fearing a public backlash, the government finally backed down. The churches remained open until the end of the war and the Jews were allowed to remain in Bulgaria. Tens of thousands of lives were saved all because people of good conscience refused to be silent in the face of evil. Standing up and speaking out for truth. Speaking out for what's right. Speaking out for our convictions. It's a dying art, isn't it? We seem content today to to live invisible lives. Fly under the radar, not make waves. We don't want to be viewed in a bad light. We don't want to offend anyone. We, we, We don't want to stand out. We don't want the criticism. We don't want to put our beliefs on the line. We're content to bury our convictions, hide our principles, and then live with the truth and the fact that truth itself was trampled. And we lay on our pillows and we close our eyes and we ease our conscience with lies about keeping peace and not making enemies. The reality is that truth, God's truth, is offensive. To those living in opposition of God's principles, His truth offends. And if we don't stand up for it, and if we don't speak out for it, what do we stand for? What do we become? You know, the saddest part about our silence isn't, isn't that God's truth won't be shared. God will always find an instrument to proclaim His truth. If we're not willing to, do you think that stops God? No, the, the saddest part of our silence is what it does to us. We're the ones who live with the shame of silence and compromise. And slowly and surely, that silence of compromise will change us and degrade us and eventually destroy our faith. On the contrary, a single courageous act of faith, evidenced by standing up and speaking out in support of something that's right in the eyes of God, or standing up and speaking out against something that's wrong in the eyes of God, can change an individual, a circumstance, a nation's very history. You don't believe me? Turn with me to our text this morning. Jeremiah chapter 38. And the scene is this. It's a sad spiritual state of affairs for the nation of Israel. Idolatry was rampant. 
Astrology and worshiping the stars had become, become the latest spiritual fads. The notion of the day for society was that it's all right to worship God so long as it doesn't keep you from creating other gods and doing whatever you want it to do. Oh, we're all for the Lord and his principles in theory until it touches our everyday lives and what we want to do. We love God's ways and his principles until they try and prevent us from doing our will and our wants. They were in the middle of a sexual revolution in which adultery was not, not only running wild, it had become encouraged and found its way into the lives of the prophets and priests. And some men, to get around the rules of adultery, would divorce their wives, marry someone else, divorce the second wife, and go back and remarry the first one. Work around. The rich were getting greedier and greedier as they sucked everything they possibly could from the poor. The people created their own truth as to what was right and what was wrong. There was no moral standard. And the word of God was thrown out the window of their lives. And for 20 years, a godly prophet named Jeremiah had been warning the people to turn from their sin, had been warning them that the Babylonians were coming to invade the land. God's hand would be upon them. And the people were sick and tired of hearing from Jeremiah. That's all he said. Johnny, one note. Gloom and doom and all the threats of all the bad things that would happen if they didn't change their ways. They found plenty of prophets who told them the Babylonians would never come. You're safe. Carry on. Made them feel good. It's always easy to find voices and and sermons and pastors and, and friends, spiritual leaders who, who will tell us what we want to hear, who will tell us we're fine. You don't need to change a thing. When the message from God is one of, of blessing and prosperity, it's, oh, how wonderful God is. Thank you for delivering His message to us. When it's a message of warning or punishment, well, it's time to shoot the messenger. That's not God's message, Jeremiah. That's, that must be your personal opinion. But sure enough, sure enough, the day came when the armies of Babylon were outside the gates and walls of Jerusalem. The city is under siege and the people are stressed and fearful. And the hated prophet Jeremiah has been given another message from God to deliver. And let's start reading Jeremiah 38, verse 1. God help me. We've got a lot of names here. All right. Shephatiah, son of Matin. Jedaliah, son of Pasher. Jehuchel, son of Shelemiah. And Pasher, son of Malchijah, heard what Jeremiah was telling all the people when he said the following. This is what the Lord says. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine or plague. But whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. They will escape with their lives. They will live. And this is what the Lord says. The city will certainly be given into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon, who will capture it. Then the officials said to the king, this man should be put to death. He is discouraging the soldiers who are left in the city, as well as all the people by the things he's saying to them. This man is not seeking the good of these people, but their ruin. He is in your hands, King Zedekiah, a very weak king, answered. 
The king can do nothing to oppose you. So they took Jeremiah and put him into the cistern of, of Malchijah, the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the guard. They lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud, and Jeremiah sank down into the mud. Now, now it's important to, to note, let's stop here, that these four men were officials, were princes of the nation. They were royalty. They were very powerful men and held in high esteem. In better days, they were men who befriended and honored Jeremiah. But it goes to show how fickle the hearts of men are. The one they once honored as God's messenger is now the one they turn on when they no longer like the message. So blinded by sin were these princes that they wished to silence Jeremiah permanently. They lowered him in a deep, subterranean, muddy dungeon to die a slow and agonizing death from cold and starvation. But God will never leave his servants to perish. He always raises someone up to stand for right, to stand for truth. And one of the scripture's most obscure characters is about to become one of its greatest heroes. I preached a sermon not long ago on obscure heroes in the Bible, Ehud. We're going we're gonna to hear about another one now. Verse 7. But Ebed-Melech, a Cushite, an official in the royal palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. While the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Ebed-Melech went out of the palace and said to him, My lord the king, these men have acted wickedly in all they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. They have thrown him into a cistern where he will starve to death when there's no longer any bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Cushite, take 30 men from here with you and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and, and went to a room under the treasury in the palace and he took some old rags and worn out clothes from there and, and let them down with ropes to Jeremiah in the cistern. Ebed-Melech the Cushite said to Jeremiah, put these old rags and worn out clothes under your arms to pad the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. And they pulled him up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. Let's stop there. Ebed-Melech, who, who was this man? What do we know about him? Very, very little. He hasn't been mentioned before in the book of Jeremiah or, or any of Scripture. And we have no reason to suppose that up to this point he's ever actually met the prophet Jeremiah in person. Nevertheless, he knows of him and he respects him as a man of God. Ebed-Melech isn't a high-ranking official. He's not an orator. He holds no position of influence. He's, he's merely a palace servant. He's a Cushite, most likely a eunuch. And he has neither political clout nor religious standing. He has no following. He's probably the last person on the planet who would come to Jeremiah's aid. But that's who God uses. He didn't have any power. He didn't have any money. He didn't have position. He didn't have authority. He didn't have clout or standing or even the king's ear. There was a very long list of attributes Ebed-Melech didn't have. 
But what he did have was more than enough. God gave him the three things necessary to stand for truth and be a hero. And these same three things he can give each one of us today if our heart's desire is to honor and please him and stand up for truth regardless of the earthly consequences. We're going to look at them today. First, first, God gave him the conviction to speak. Ebed-Melech wasn't a Jew. He was a Cushite. This conflict didn't even involve him. It's not his cause. It wasn't his problem. He didn't need to care. He didn't need to bother. He didn't need to get involved. But he did. When he hears through the palace grapevine of Jeremiah's fate, he knows something has to be done. His heart is stirred to act. What's that? That's a conviction. It's important to understand what conviction is. A true conviction is personal and it's permanent. It's not a temporary opinion. It's not a short-lived feeling. It's not a rule we follow. It's not a preference we choose today and change tomorrow. David C. Gibbs Jr. of the Christian Law Association explained the following. He said, the difference between a conviction and a preference, according to the U.S. Supreme Court, a preference is a very strong belief held with great strength. You can give your entire life in a full-time way to the service of the preference. You can also give your entire material wealth in the name of the belief. You can also energetically proselytize others to your preference. You can also want to teach this belief to your children. And the Supreme Court may still rule that it's a preference. A preference is a strong belief, but a belief that you will change under the right circumstance. Circumstances such as peer pressure. If your beliefs are such that other people stand with you before you stand, your beliefs are preferences, not convictions. Family pressures, lawsuits, jail, threat of death. Would you die for your beliefs? He says a conviction is a belief that will not change. Why? A man believes that his God requires it of him. Preferences aren't protected by the Constitution. Convictions are. A conviction is not something you discover. It's something that you purpose in your heart. Convictions on the inside will always show up on the outside in the person's lifestyle. To violate a conviction, he says, would be a sin. It's important. It's important to understand that contrast, the difference, the distinction in our lives between our preferences and our convictions. The possessions we like, the cars we choose, preferences. The sports teams we root for, preferences. Our political affiliations, preferences. These can change under the right circumstances. But what about our Christian lifestyle? Do we follow Christ and live lives that honor Him as a preference that can be changed given the right Pressures and circumstances? Should geography change your convictions? Should where you live change your convictions? Should the church you attend change your convictions? No. So friend, ask yourself today, is my relationship with Christ, my claim to Christianity, is the reason I'm sitting here today a preference or a conviction? Are the principles I believe preferences or convictions? How about separation? Is that a preference I follow because someone told me I should? 
Or is it a personal conviction I believe because God says it's right? Do I believe what I believe because someone told me to? Because my friends believe them? Are these, are these simply rules to be followed, thus becoming preferences? Or are these deeply held personal convictions? If they're preferences, guess what? They won't last. They won't last. They're subject to change based on external pressures, environment, influences. If they're convictions, they're non-negotiable and they're forever. Are your beliefs preferences or convictions? So how do you identify conviction? First, it doesn't change regardless of the pressures around us to change. And second, it produces action. See, a conviction isn't just a standalone principle. A conviction turns into action. We act on our convictions. What good would it have done for Ebed Melech to say, you know, I really, really strongly believe that what was done to Jeremiah was wrong. And then just stay silent about it. It's a nice preference, a nice belief, but it produces nothing. It's fruitless. A true conviction is never fruitless. It demands action. In times of testing, if what you claim are your convictions don't produce corresponding action, if you don't follow your convictions by what you say and what you do, then either you're quenching the Holy Spirit, which turns that conviction into action, or it was never really a conviction to begin with. There's one last thing I want to say about conviction. We hear a lot about our convictions, don't we? Stay true, follow. Stay true to your convictions and follow your convictions. But before any action is taken, we need to analyze our convictions to make sure they align with scriptural truth. Sidney Harris said, I'm tired of hearing about men with the strength to follow their convictions. Nero and Caligula and Attila and Hitler had the strength of their convictions, but none of them had the wisdom to examine his convictions. Friend, make sure that what you're following as your convictions align with God's word. Pray to him with an open heart to give you the right convictions, convictions that are aligned with his principles that cannot be changed and that produce godly action. That's what Ebed Melech possessed. He had no personal agenda. He had no underhanded motive. He had no desire to better his image or look good or play the hero. It wasn't a popularity play. On the contrary, there was nothing at stake for him here. Yet despite that fact, despite the fact that he had no interest, he had nothing on the line, he still had a God-given conviction to stand up and speak out against injustice. God gave him, first, the conviction to speak. Second, he gave him the courage to speak. Despite however strongly he might have felt about the injustice, a palace servant had zero business speaking to the king uninvited. To approach the king and speak his mind openly, especially when it was in defiance of the princes, right, the very, the very relatives of the king, would surely be viewed as treason and result in Ebed Melech's execution. The threat of death, however, didn't deter our hero. That's courage. That's courage not just in the face of rejection or denial or hurt feelings. That's courage in the face of death. And even if, if by some miracle the king didn't imprison him or have him put to death, 
Well, surely word is going to get out to those princes about what Ebed-Melech had to say. And they would have him put to death. They're trying to with Jeremiah. Ebed-Melech didn't care. He didn't let that fear stop him. Where, where does that kind of courage come from? Only from God. How many reminders He's given us in Scripture over and over again. Joshua 1.9 Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Deuteronomy 31.6 Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Psalm 16.8 I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With Him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Over and over again, we're reminded, be strong and courageous. Why? Well, because He is with us. We don't go alone. We don't battle alone. He's right there with us. And when He's with us, guess who's doing the battling? We just need to show up. When we realize God is going to be with us in the battle, no matter how great the threat, it seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? But, but it's the Holy Spirit that brings that knowledge to mind during our trials and provides the accompanying willingness to step out in faith. Friend, if you, if you find yourself and keep finding yourself repeatedly without the courage to stand up for what you believe in, the courage to resist temptation, the courage to overcome sin, well, it's time to admit the truth that you're either quenching the power of the Spirit or the Holy Spirit doesn't exist in your life. Too often, we try to do it alone, don't we? You don't have to fabricate courage if the Holy Spirit fills you with it. If you're leaning on God, you don't need your own strength in the battle ahead. And even when we step out on our own, we quickly find out that what we have isn't enough. The courage and the strength we bring to the table is quickly shredded. But when we have the courage to lean on God's strength, we find no obstacle in our way that can stand. What's behind the courage to act on our Christian convictions? Well, we take action because we know that not taking action would be a sin. And there's nothing we fear more than sin. That should be what we're afraid of. The consequence of our action can't be worse than sin that hurts the very heart of God and destroys our personal testimony. Threat of denial, threat of defeat, threat of death, you name it. It's not worse than sin and its effects. That's the courage we need. That's the courage that can change the world for Christ. John Wesley said this, Give me a hundred men who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God and I will shake the world. I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen and such alone will overthrow the kingdom of Satan and build up the kingdom of God on earth. That's the kind of courage we need. Gauge your courage today, friend. How well do you stand by your convictions? How well do you act on them? Speak up for them. How well do you stand for truth and tell people about it? 
How well do you stand against injustice when you see it? Wrong and sin and speak out against it. You know, silence, silence isn't an option when eternity is on the line. Is your faith a courageous faith or do you fold whenever there's a threat of looking bad? Criticism, conflict. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to lose this friendship because of my stand. Well, if your friend will flee based on your stand for Christ, that's not a friend worth keeping. Well, I don't want to be controversial. I don't want to make waves. Jesus Christ sure made a lot of waves when He took the nails and the crown of thorns for you. Is it too much to ask for you to stand up for Him today? To stand up with your words and your actions and your life? Of all the memorials in Westminster Abbey, there isn't one that gives a more noble thought than the one inscribed on the monument to Lord Lawrence. Simply his name with the date of his death and these words. He feared man so little because he feared God so much. May that be said of you. May that be said of me. It's certainly something we can say of Ebed Melech. His conviction turned into courageous action. He didn't back down, though every chip was against him. He had a God-given conviction. And he acted with God-given courage. Not even fear of death could keep him from standing up and speaking out to the king for God. He feared man so little because he feared God so much. So first, God gave Ebed-Melech the conviction to speak. Second, he gave him the courage to speak. And third and finally, he gave him the words to speak. Ebed-Melech wasn't a trained orator. He had no grand argument to make with the king. Just taking the action to get the king's attention was courageous enough. But what on earth was he going to say? What argument could he make to sway the king against his own relatives, against the very princes of the nation? Would he need to sugarcoat the message so as not to offend? You know, great king, these princes have characters of the finest reputation and breeding. And, and in all their pursuits, I'm most certain their motives are nothing but just and pure and only for the good of our great nation. No, call it like it is. My lord, the king, these men have acted wickedly in all they have done to Jeremiah. I don't care what their intentions were. I'm not here to judge their motives. I'm not here to see things from their perspective. Based on the actions they took, these men have acted wickedly. Ebed-Melech spoke his heart and didn't mince words. He was direct and truthful. God gave him the right words to speak and he didn't temper the truth. It's so sad that in Christianity at large today, in our attempt not to offend, so much has been lost in translation. So much has been watered down. So much has been altered to coddle sinners. Look, God defines sin. God hates all sin. God loves sinners and wants them to stop sinning. What happened? What happened to those simple points? What happened to those simple, clear truths? We've buried them. We've buried them. They're lost somewhere underneath. Well, it's not sin if the cause is love or fun or equality. Sin is sin, friend. 
Abed-Melech didn't coddle the sin. He didn't coddle the sinners, the princes. He didn't coddle the king. Here it is, king. Here's my heart's conviction. Here's the truth. You need to act on it. Is there anything more pure than speaking up for what's right? Don't try to justify. Don't try to pacify. Yeah, yeah, I know. But look, look, hear me out. Look at it from the prince's perspectives. I don't mean to play devil's advocate, but what kind of message is Jeremiah sending to the armies of the nation? It's one of defeat and giving up. You know, I can see where those princes were coming from. Should I really take a stand against them if if I kind of see their point? Shouldn't I be true to myself? God, no. Don't be true to yourself. How much more depraved this world would be if we as believers were true to ourselves and our base desires and our motives and our agendas and our perspectives. Don't be true to yourself, friend. Be true to God's principles. Even when they stand in opposition to what we want and what we desire and our perspectives and our motives and our agendas. God's truth is the standard, not our perspectives. His word, his truths. Those are the principles that should define our convictions, our actions, and our words. Early in his ministry, when he was pastor of the Congregational Church at Rugley, Campbell Morgan studied hard and and he preached often. He was discovering and developing the gift of Bible exposition that later made him the Prince of Expositors. His preaching made him very popular. He was a great orator. And one evening as he sat in his study, he felt God saying to him, what are you going to be? A preacher or my messenger? As Morgan pondered the question, he realized that his desire to become a great preacher was hindering his work. For several hours, Morgan sat there struggling with God's call and human ambition. Finally, as the tears rolled down his cheeks, he said, Thy messenger, my master, thine. He took the precious outlines of his flowery sermons, messages that he he had been proud of, and he laid them in the fireplace where they burned to ash. That was when the victory was won. As the outlines were burning, Morgan prayed, Father, if thou wilt give me thy words to speak, I will utter them from this day forward, adding nothing to them, taking naught away. Thine whole counsel I will declare, so help me God. That should be our prayer. Lord, give me your words to speak, and I will speak them for the rest of my days, adding nothing to them, taking nothing away. That's a prayer that God will answer every time. He'll give you the words. He'll give you the wisdom and He'll make you effective. You know, earlier in the book of Jeremiah, He promised the same to the prophet. Jeremiah said earlier in chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Verse 8. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Verse 9. Then the Lord reached out His hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. There are no better words to speak than the words the Lord speaks through us. He'll give us the words and He'll make them effective. Look, was was Ebed-Melech's 
argument, such a persuasive one, that the king was floored and moved to action. No. As rhetorical arguments go, it was hearsay. Had they been spoken in his flesh, they would have been written off. Ebed-Melech, that, that's your opinion. And wait a minute, who are you? Why on earth would the king believe you? Why on earth should the king believe you? Well, simply because he was obeying the will of God and standing up for truth. When you do that, God does something. He will make your words effective. As weak as you think they may be, God will cause your words, stirred by the Spirit, and spoken with godly conviction to become like fiery arrows aimed at the heart of sin. May our words be seasoned and ordained by God. May we never speak out in the flesh. May we never speak out of secular opinion, conceit, pride, personal agenda. Let our words be chosen by God. If we are in His will with a desire to honor and glorify Him, if we have a willingness to stand up and speak out for Him, He will not only give us the conviction to speak, He will not only give us the courage to speak, He will give us the very words to speak. And Ebed-Melech's words fell on fertile soil. God had prepared the heart of King Zedekiah and He was moved. Ebed-Melech, go. Go rescue him. His cause was successful. Jeremiah was rescued. And in verse 28... We read, and Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard until the day Jerusalem was captured. Fast forward now to the next chapter. And just as Jeremiah had prophesied, Jerusalem fell into the hands of the Babylonians. The city wall was broken through and destroyed. Everything was ransacked. The royal palace and every house was burned to the ground. But we read in Jeremiah 39.11, Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had given these orders about Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard. Take him and look after him. Don't harm him, but do for him whatever he asks. So Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, a chief officer, Nergal Sherezer, a high official, and all the other officers of the king of Babylon, all the ones with Z's in their names. <laughs> they sent and had Jeremiah taken out of the courtyard of the guard. And look at this. They turned him over to Jedaliah, son of Ahikim, the son of Shaphan, to take him back to his home. So he remained among his own people. God always protects His own, doesn't He? How faithful He is. How gracious His providence. But what happened? What happened to our dear, courageous Abed-Melech? Well, keep reading. Verse 15. While Jeremiah had been confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him. Jeremiah, go and tell Abed-Melech. Remember him? The Cushite. Tell him this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. I am about to fulfill my words against this city. Words concerning disaster, not prosperity. At that time, they will be fulfilled before your eyes. But I will rescue you on that day, declares the Lord. You will not even be given into the hands of those you fear. I will save you. You will not fall by the sword, but will escape with your life. 
because you trust in me, declares the Lord. I will honor those who honor me. When we stand for God, He stands for us. When we speak for God, He speaks for us. He speaks on our behalf. God will never leave Himself indebted to us for even the smallest act of faith, of courage, of conviction. How sweet that must have been for Jeremiah to deliver the message to the one who had played the role of his rescuer. Look at the difference of the outcomes. Those who refused to listen to Jeremiah lost their lives in the siege. Those who listened to Jeremiah kept their lives but were turned over to the Babylonians as slaves. But the one who defended Jeremiah not only kept his life, but kept his freedom. He was not given into the hands of the Babylonians. If you want God to honor you, if you want a prosperous and abundant life, honor God. Not just silently, not just when it's convenient or there's no threat, but stand up for Him and speak out for Him. Much harm can be done by our silence. Wrongs may never be righted. Injustices may never be corrected. Sin may go unacknowledged. And change may never come. But when we stand up and speak out for Christ, we can change our world. Friend, is your life for Christ evident by the stands you take? The words you say? What a different world this would be if we as believers lived out our convictions in word and action. What a different family life you could have. What a different marriage. What a different workplace you could have if you consistently stood by and spoke out the convictions you claim to hold. If that's your heart's desire today, pray to the Lord. He will give you that conviction. Isn't it time? Isn't it time to, to get off the fence? Pick a side. Pick God's side. Stand up and speak out for Him. Dr. Robert Moorhead tells the story of a young man from Rwanda, a missionary with Africa Evangelical Fellowship, who was forced by his tribe in 1980 to renounce Christ or face death. He refused to renounce Christ, and he was murdered on the spot. The night before, he had written the following commitment, which was found in his room. I'm going to close with what he wrote. And I pray that each one of us, if we are truly followers of Christ, can echo and live out his words. He says this, I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. 
I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till He comes, give till I drop, preach till all know and work till He stops me. And when He comes for His own, He will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to live sold out. We want to live like that. We want to live unashamed for You. I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ and I will live it and speak it and say it and stand for it. We thank You for the example of Ebed Melech. Lord, make us people like him who will stand for what's right, who will speak up, who will say something, who will stand for Your truth, who will stand for You, Lord. We pray that You will instill in us the right convictions. Convictions that are based on Your Word and Your principles. Give us unshakable courage, Father. Courage that's undeterred by our circumstances or the criticisms or threats around us. And give us, Father, Your words. Speak through us. And let our stands and our actions and our words be effective for You. Lord, we want to live unashamed lives of courage, standing up and speaking out for You. You are worthy. You deserve nothing less. We love You. And we pray in the precious name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.